think there can be anything more embarrassing, more shameful or humiliating than being caught up in a sex scandal. And if that were the case, I don't think there could be anything worse than to be caught red-handed and being taken right into the presence of somebody so holy, so perfect, and so respected as Jesus. There could be nothing worse than being caught red-handed in an affair and having the people who barge in the bedroom be the stuffed shirt, holier-than-thou, religious leaders of your day. There could be no place worse to find yourself than in the temple of God, sharing the shame and the regret of a stupid romantic decision. But that's exactly how one of the most famous stories in the life of Jesus begins. Jesus is teaching in the temple. The Pharisees bring to him a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And they take this woman and they throw her down at Jesus' feet. And in my mind, I imagine her just wrapped up in a bed sheet trying to cling to whatever dignity she can maintain. Mascara, and I guess they wore that back then, running down her face. And the Pharisees want to use this woman as bait to trap Jesus. And so they say, Jesus, look at her. If you really claim to speak for God then you know that the law says that if she's guilty of adultery, she deserves to die. But, Jesus, if you really are as loving as everybody says, surely you're going to let her go. So now what? Jesus, what do you say? The Bible says that Jesus didn't say anything. He just stooped down in the dirt and started to write. Now, the Bible doesn't say what he wrote on the dirt. I think it was probably the names of their girlfriends. Monica, Tina, I don't know. But then Jesus, while he's there, stooped on the ground, just says, let he that is without sin among you cast the first stone. And those few words are so convicting that the men who are trying to play judge, jury, and executioner found themselves condemned. They dropped the rocks and they walked away. Then Jesus looked at the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And he asked her, he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, there's no one here to accuse me. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Today we are going to read about a church who interrupted the words of Jesus right there. A church who believed that the grace of God granted them a hall pass to any kind of sexual immorality that they chose. People that believe that, hey, it's just our bodies. What does it matter? It's just sex. I mean, what's the big deal? What does it matter? And if it does matter, surely Jesus will forgive us. Who cares? But Jesus did not just say to that woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn thee. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And the church at Corinth had forgotten that Jesus' love is so powerful and so transformative that he loves us too much to leave us in sexual sin. Whether it's in our past or in our present, he always delivers perfectly. 
I want to show you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So would you take your Bible and turn there with me today. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 and verse number 12. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Now as we have studied the book of 1 Corinthians over the past Several months here on Sunday mornings, I'm sure by now you've picked up on the fact that the church of Corinth is a church that is very, very confused, very confused about their sexuality. You saw in chapter number five a few weeks ago how they had in their church a man who was having an ongoing affair with his stepmother. Hmm. And the church doesn't seem to see any kind of problem with it. We saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, how these are people that had sexual immorality and adultery and even homosexuality in their past. These people had seen it all, experienced it all, bought it all, sold it all. There's nothing that they hadn't done. But the problem seems to be that that sexual immorality was not just in their past, but it was in their present. It wasn't just in their lives before Jesus but it was ongoing in their lives now. The problem in Corinth was that sexual immorality was not just in the culture, but sexual immorality was in the church because sexual immorality was in the heart of the people of God. And in particular, the Apostle Paul is going to deal in this passage of Scripture with the problem of people buying prostitutes. You see that in verse number 15. He's dealing with the very real problem of of prostitution. Now, we would think, that it would be so obvious that a Christian should never buy a prostitute that you would never have to say anything about it. Like, why do you have to put that in the Bible? Why do I need to preach on that on a Sunday morning? Well, it wasn't obvious, apparently, to the people of Corinth. And the reason that it probably wasn't obvious is because, frankly, in the ancient city of Corinth and in the ancient world, everybody bought prostitutes, especially men. It's just what you did. It's kind of like, the only way I can think of explaining it, it, it's kind of like in Alabama, everybody dipped. Um, At least every man dips, right? And every man that don't dip, did dip, or probably will dip again. It's just the way it is. When I got my driver's license when I moved to Alabama, they gave me like a a can of soap. You know? They said, do you want to be an organ donor? And they gave it to me, roll tide, and carry on, right? 
And even, even some of the ladies, I'm not sure, like maybe you don't dip, but you still kiss them to get a nicotine buzz, don't you? And we just accept it. We just don't think anything about it. We just try to pay careful attention to which bottles we drink out of. It's just all, and that's the way it was in, in Corinth when it came to prostitution. Everybody did it. All the men did it. Everybody's dad had done it. Everybody's brothers did it. Everybody's uncles and grandfather. It was just part of their culture. They would go to work banquets hosted at the uh, temples of different idols. And while they were there, the last course of the meal would be temple prostitutes. They would think it was nothing unusual if you had a long, hard week at work to buy a prostitute before you came home. In fact, in the ancient world, most men would be revolted and offended by the idea of a regular, satisfying, physical relationship with their wife. You had kids with your wife, and that was it. But you enjoyed your sexual appetites away from home with other women and sometimes even with other men. And Paul says to this church, he says, listen, this is so schizophrenic and it's so insane that something has got to give. And what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to bring the church really back to Jesus, back to Scripture, back to their own future as the people of God and say to them, Jesus loves us so much that he refuses to leave us in sexual sin. That he really does save us from our sexual sin. But this passage of scripture, even though I hope nobody here is buying prostitutes on the regular, if you are, you need to repent and get right with God. Thank you, brother. But this passage of scripture does confront some of the most commonly held confusions that people have today when it comes to human sex and human sexuality. Not just in our world, but in the church. The Apostle Paul confronts some of the ways that we might be confused today as he shows us how Jesus saves us from sexual immorality. And the first way that Jesus saves us from sexual immorality is by remaking our morality. Jesus remakes our morality. Now, Paul starts in verse number 12 by answering the objections that he knows the Corinthians are going to raise. If you'll notice in your Bible, there are scare quotes around the first sentence in verse number 12. All things are lawful to me. Paul knows that the Corinthians are going to come to him and say, Well, Paul, all things are lawful for us. What's the big deal? Jesus will forgive us. We know he'll give us grace. We know that even... If we sin sexually, if we can sin sexually, if it is a sin, Paul, then we know that Jesus will forgive us. There was in Corinth a deep confusion about the gospel of Jesus Christ because they believed that if they believed in Jesus, then they could get away with anything. Surely it's going to be under the blood, right, Paul? What's the big deal? And this is the first pillar of their morality that allowed them to worship Jesus on Sunday morning and do who knows what on Saturday night. And it's the same pillar that many people in the church have today as the foundation for their sexual morality. Believing that, you know, hey, nobody's perfect. Boys will be boys and kids will be kids, right? And if we've been baptized and if we've been to the altar and if we ask Jesus to forgive us, then it really doesn't make much difference what we do. Paul says, no, it does make a difference what we do. And he's going to show how in this passage of Scripture. But I want to just stop right here and make it abundantly clear to you by being as brutally frank as I possibly can. That if we believe that Jesus died to make us better sinners who can sin more efficiently and more effectively and with less guilt, 
then we have misunderstood the gospel of grace. We have misunderstood the gospel that transforms and the gospel that saves. Jesus did not save us so that we could sin without fear. He saved us so that in part we would be terrified of the sin that he saved us from. And so Paul responds, all things are lawful to me. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Are you helping that woman caught in poverty when you're buying her as a prostitute? Are you helping your marriage? Are you helping your wife? Are you helping your kids? Are you helping your walk with Jesus? Paul says, consider sexual sin and ask, is it helpful? Is it helpful to be continually looking over your shoulder and deleting your internet browsing history? Is it helpful to be sending pictures of yourself to your boyfriend or girlfriend or friend with benefits or whatever you call it nowadays when you're 14 or 15? Is it helpful to be compounding a lifetime of guilt and regret? Is it helpful to be flirting with men you're not married to? Is it helpful, Paul says, to be engaged in sexual sin? Is it helpful to disobey God? No. And then he goes further. Well, Paul says, all things are lawful to me. Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be brought under the control of any sexual sin or any person who pressures me into sexual sin. I will not be lorded over by my lust. Paul wants the church to see the foolishness in saying, Jesus is my Savior, but lust is my Lord. And for all the freedom that the Corinthians were, were claiming to have, we're free in Jesus to do whatever we want to with our bodies. Paul says, you think you're free, but you're a slave. You're addicted. You're addicted to your sexual behavior. You're controlled by your appetites. And all that you think sex promises you, and all that you think that romantic love will give you. So Paul deals with two kind of pseudo-spiritual arguments. And then he deals with, a cultural argument there in verse number 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food. And I think that the next phrase really belongs in the quotation marks. And God will destroy both one and the other. Paul, listen. Man, that's enough of your uptight puritanical rules. Listen. The food's meant for the body, and the body's meant for the food. God will destroy one and the other. Paul, listen. If you got to sneeze, sneeze. If you got to eat, go get a whopper. And if you have appetites and urges that are sexual in nature, Paul, satisfy them. What is the big deal? It's just harmless sex. And Paul is going to show us in just a moment that there is no such thing as that. That sex can never be totally casual. But this was the way the ancient people thought about sex. It's just a body. You're just a steaming pile of hormones crammed in the back seat of a car. What does it matter? You're just a product of billions of years of natural selection and evolution. What does it hurt? What's the difference? What, uh, who, nobody's going to know about it. And today, even if they did know about it, nobody's going to care about it. If you're hungry, eat. It's the same attitude that many people around us have. It might be the same attitude that you have. It's your body. Do with it as you please. Paul's going to redefine the way we think about our bodies as we go a little bit further. But it would be worth asking us today, as a church body, as we think about the Corinthians and the way their sexual ethics had been defined by their culture, have our sexual values been defined by the Word of God or by the lies of our culture? Have our sexual values been defined by the God who made us and who made sex or by convenience? I've noticed this interesting 
weird middle space that Christians in Alabama and other places, but Christians can live in, where we have certain convictions about sexuality that we have on Sunday morning in church. And yet, our behaviors don't line up with those convictions. Who really is discipling us, forming us, when it comes to our sexuality? Is it Jesus and his word? Or is it the world around us and the appetite for this? Well, Paul's going to disciple this church by showing not only how Jesus remakes our morality, but how Jesus reimagines or really redefines our bodies. You see this in verse number 13 and 15. The Corinthians thought that the body's just meat. Man, this body is just this old meat sack that one day, you know, it's going to die and be buried and that's it. And the best thing that can happen to us anyway is to be freed from our bodies. So what does it matter what we do with our bodies? That's the way that people in Corinth would have thought about their bodies. But Paul is going to elevate the understanding of the human body. And he's going to say that the body has value because God made the human body. God redeemed the human body. Jesus, to save us from our sins, took upon himself a body. A body that had arms and legs and skin and hair and a voice and eyes and ears and a mouth that could talk. Jesus lived in a human body. Jesus died a human death in that human body. Jesus rose again in a resurrected, glorified human body. Jesus took his human body to heaven where he still lives in a human body. And Paul says that our bodies have been united to Jesus. And what he's saying is that our bodies are destined for heaven. You may not realize this. I think a lot of times we don't think about this. But I'll say it to you this way. This body is going to heaven. Now, one day this body may go to the grave, yes. But one day Jesus will resurrect this body. And these hands, these feet, all this will be glorified, yes. But it will be in heaven forever. My ultimate hope of salvation is not that I get out of this body but that this body is transformed and this body is resurrected and this body is glorified and perfected without sin, without death, without decay, without disease. That's my ultimate hope. And so Paul takes that future ultimate hope to the church and he makes them think, okay, if this body is ultimately heaven's property, do I have the right to take heaven's property to a prostitute? No is the answer. Do I have the right to do with heaven's property whatever I want to on prom night? No. Do I have the right to dress and display heaven's property however I may feel like? No. Thank you. Paul is saying that these bodies matter because these bodies are destined for heaven. See, what Paul's doing is he's reminding the church what is so vital to Christian teaching and scripture. That our salvation is not just, I don't have to go to hell. That our salvation is, I participate fully in the life of God in Christ. His righteousness, His resurrection, His eternal future, those things are mine. And so as I am united with Christ, I have no right, Paul says in verse number 15, to take the members of Christ, this body that is united to Christ, I have no right to take that and give it away in sexual immorality. There's no way that you could ever read Scripture and come to the conclusion that God created this body for the purpose of sexual rebellion against the God who made this body. 
And so there's no way that you could interpret the Christian gospel and believe that I have the right to take what has been united to Jesus and give it away in sexual sin. And so Paul says, would you ever take the members of Christ and give them to a prostitute? And the word members there is is a word that means limbs. So Paul's wanting to shock the church with how revolting that thought would be and should be. And so Paul would ask us, he would say, would Jesus ever lay his hands on your girlfriend? No. So you don't have a right to lay your hands on your girlfriend because those are Jesus' hands, buddy. Would Jesus ever use his eyes to undress the girl walking down the street? No. And so you don't have the right to do that with your eyes because those are eyes that belong to Jesus. As he will say at the end of the passage, those are eyes he bought and paid for at the cross. They don't belong to you. You don't have the right to do with them as you please. You see Paul's point here? Paul's point is that we should be horrified by sexualism. And so he redefines our bodies, but he also in doing that, verse 16, reframes our sexuality. Do you not know, verse 16, apparently there was a lot the Corinthians didn't know. Do you not know? Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Paul says you can't just use them and lose them. You can't just have your fun and a few minutes later discard them. Because from the way the Bible thinks about sex, sex is never just sex. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24. And he says, the two will become one flesh. And he's saying here in this passage of Scripture that human sexuality is so serious, so important. It's such a precious gift from God that when we abuse that gift and when we misuse that gift, there are serious, steep consequences to sexual sin. Now, we like the old cliche that all sin is the same in the eyes of God. And at one level, that is true. It only takes one little innocent sin to find us legally condemned before a righteous God. One little white lie will do it. Steal the pack of gum from the grocery store. And you find yourself guilty before God. But at another level, stealing a pack of gum is not the same thing as stealing another man's wife. And what Paul is doing in this passage of Scripture is showing us the steep consequences that come with sexual sin. And I suspect that as much as we may try to gloss over or sugarcoat sexual immorality, as much as we might excuse it or justify it in ourselves or in our family, we do suspect deep down that this really is true. Because we know, don't we, how 15 minutes of fun can turn into a lifetime of guilt. We know the danger of giving ourselves in lust and infatuation to somebody and then finding ourselves shackled to that person for the rest of our life. We know the consequences of coupling, throupling, and hooking up and anything and everything that we do that we think it's really not that big of a deal. Because like the Corinthians, we've done it. And we carry the scars of a sexual past. And we carry the shame of sexual sin. And we carry the guilt of sexual regret. We've lived this truth that sexual sin carries with it steep consequences. So Paul's pastoral counsel in verse number 18 is to run. He says, flee from sexual immorality. In other words, for them, he's saying, guys, do not 
slow down and look at the merchandise when you pass the brothel on the way home from work. No, run. Close your eyes and run because there is hell inside of that house and it will kill you. This is sage advice for us too that when something flashes across our phone or our computer or however we find ourselves surfing the internet or when something comes on television that tempts us, don't linger over it. Guys, don't linger over it. Run from it because it will consume you and kill you when you are tempted with someone you're not married to. Run. Paul has to. Paul has to be using the story of Joseph as his inspiration, right? Remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph is a slave in Egypt, but even though he's a slave, he's kind of the right-hand man of this nobleman named Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph, wants to seduce Joseph. And there's a rich Egyptian. She's a rich Egyptian woman. And the thing about rich women is is that even if they're not good-looking, they've got the money to be good-looking. And Joseph is away from home. Nobody in Joseph's family is ever going to know if he goes in and sleeps with Potiphar's wife. And one day they're all alone in the house. She's engineered the perfect romantic encounter. And she tries her best to seduce Joseph. And she lays hold of his coat. But Joseph spins out of that joker and runs out of the house. So that he won't fall prey to Potiphar's wife's seduction. Paul says, run for your life. Do everything you can to get away. And for some of you that are here today that are still on the other side of your first sexual experiences because of your age, let those of us who have lived a little bit of life, who carry some scars and some regret, listen to the warning we will tell you. Run. There's only one way God has designed for us to enjoy sex. And when you take that gift God has given you and you use it outside of the way God has given you to use it, you will regret it. You will carry guilt. You will carry shame. It's so easy when you're 15 or 16 years old, and maybe maybe I should say even younger, when you're 12 or 13 nowadays, and you haven't had sex yet to believe that sex is the greatest thing that you'll ever do even though you've never done it. Somehow you know this. You believe this lie in the culture that this is the ultimate freedom and the ultimate thrill. It is the ultimate love. It is the greatest thing that anybody has ever done in the history of anything people have ever done. And then as soon as you give in to that lie on the other side to be filled with shame and guilt that you cannot get rid of. Paul's saying, run. Even if you're older and you're using pornography, guys, run from it. If you are flirting and you think it's all innocent with somebody at work that is married or you are married, run from it. If you're tempted before you get married with a spouse or with with a fiancé or whatever, run for your life. Don't let it consume you. Paul is reframing our sexuality and then he concludes with the church of Corinth he reshapes their identity verse 19 do you not know again apparently they didn't don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost now that verse of scripture when I was a kid man they used that to get us not to do anything they thought we ought not do can't smoke those cigarettes your body's a temple of the Holy Ghost don't drink that beer, your body's, don't you get that tattoo, your body's a temple of the Holy Ghost. But they never pull out this verse of scripture at homecoming, do they? When they've got three and a half tons of ham wheeled out on that buffet in the fellowship hall, nobody's worried about being a temple of the Holy Ghost, nobody's worried about their body then, are they? But Paul's actually talking about something much, much deeper than just tattoos. Notice that in context, this verse is specifically dealing with sexual sin. 
Paul says, don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, that your body is sacred. Your body is holy. Your body is set apart. Now think about this. Especially if you know your Bible. Paul presumes that the people in Corinth do. I presume you do. Think about your Bible. How, how much in the Old Testament in particular, how much of the history of the people of God is dominated by the centrality of temple worship? Even before the temple, even thousands of years before 1 Corinthians was written or thought of, Paul told Moses in the book of Exodus, build a tabernacle for me to meet with my people. In that tabernacle, there will be a holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, where sacrifices will be made, what Brother Will was talking about a moment ago, and where my presence will meet with my people. It's almost like God was saying, this is my throne, where my presence will dwell in the world. And then David, all of those centuries later, David wanted to build a permanent structure. He wanted to build a temple. God wouldn't let him do it, but God did let his son Solomon do it. And then the temple is eventually destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. It's rebuilt by Ezra. And then right before Jesus lived, it was remodeled and refurbished into this great ancient wonder of the world by King Herod the Great. The temple was everything. Then Jesus comes, dies, and rises again. And now Christians, we don't have a temple. So, Where's the Holy of Holies now? Where's the sacred space now? Where does God God touch earth now? Well, it does it in you. That's what Paul says. You are the temple. You are the holy place. You are the place where God's glory comes into this world as Jesus lives through you and shows His glory and grace and truth through you. You are not just a bag of meat that's going to the grave. You are the temple of God in this world. So Paul says, this is your identity. This is who you are. You are not just a bunch of sexual experiences waiting to blossom. You're not even sexual regrets that you wish you could forget. You are the temple of God. But Paul will not let the Corinthians just cheapen their identity and even cheapen their value because he goes on to say this in verse number 19, you are not your own. Then in the verse number 20, you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's what's so amazing about this passage of Scripture. Paul says to this church of people who need a really good long altar call and then a shower, Paul says to these people, he says, you all know the going rate for a prostitute. You know what a prostitute costs. What you don't realize is how much you cost. You don't realize what Jesus paid for you. You don't realize how much he loves you. You want to lay down with these ladies of the night, but you don't realize that Jesus laid down his life for you, that he carried your sins, that he cared about you. And what a message of hope and grace this is to this church because these are people just like us who do carry the scars of sexual sin. And Paul says to them, it's for those sins that Jesus died. It's for that guilt Jesus went to a cross. It's for that regret that Jesus carried. And Paul says, look, 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 identify yourself there. See his love for you there. Find your value there. Your value is not in what a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whomever says about you. As they try and value you based upon your appearance, or your willingness to engage sexually with them, Paul says, that's not who you are. 
Paul says your value is so much more than just a, a consumer of pornography using the credit card to download God only knows what. Your value is not to be found in sexual experiences. Your value is measured in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there the God of heaven laid down the life of his son to rescue you and to redeem you. And if he did that, if he redeemed you, then he owns you. And he has the right to say what you are for. And he has said that you are set apart for him as holiness. Your value is not determined by a man. Your value is not determined by somebody who promises romantic affection if you will give them your body. Your value is determined by the cross of Jesus Christ. But let me say this to you today. Your value is also not finally determined by your past. Do you understand today that Paul's writing to people who are right in the middle of all this? He's writing to people that have struggled with homosexuality. Based upon what he says there in verse number 9. He's writing to people that had had affairs and had been caught red-handed. He's writing to people that had seen it all and done it all. But Paul says to those people, Jesus laid down his life for you. Jesus, when we say that Jesus died for sinners, we're talking about people who really sin. We're talking about actual junk, actual garbage, actual human failure that carries with it all of those scars that we carry because of our sexual sin. Paul says, Jesus died for you. And your identity today is not defined by your sexual past if you belong to Jesus. Your value is not defined by your sexual experiences or your regret or your guilt or your shame. Your value is determined by the Lord Jesus who laid down his life in love for you. You may have spent years of your life trying to find somebody who would love you. And you may have given yourself to man after man or woman after woman thinking that now this is the one who is truly going to affirm me and value me. I want you to know that the eternal God of heaven has said that you are valuable to him. That you are loved by him. That he would not take from you, but he would give his life for you. And even if today you've come in this place with sexual guilt and regret, Jesus says, I'll take that from you. So you don't have to carry it. And he will say to you, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so today I hope you hear from this passage of Scripture and from me those same words that Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And go and sin no more. Many of you today maybe are in some way beleaguered by sexual sin and temptation. And so I know you won't come to the altar because you don't want anybody to judge you, and I don't necessarily blame you. But you do need to get to God today. And you need to get to Him and say, Lord, help me to fight this. Lord, really, help me not so much to fight it as to run from it. Help me to get out of it, to flee stop covering it over, to stop living in the dark and step into the light. Some of you guys here, you, you know that sexual sin is destroying your marriage, warping your heart. It, 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 it's making you cold to the things of God. You need to lay it down today. Lay down your disobedience and run to Jesus. Others of you do carry this kind of stuff in your past. Man, you need to run to Jesus too. Run to Jesus today.
The one place you are always safe with your sin is at the feet of Jesus. To bring it to Him and say, Lord, you know how I've screwed up. Lord, you know more than just my sexual history. You know what's wrong in here that's led me to all of that. Lord, forgive me. Make me clean. Make me new. He will do it. That's why He came. That's why He died. Let's stand together today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. If perhaps you need to come, if I can pray with you, help you in any way, I would like to do that. What I don't want you to do today, I don't want you to leave here this morning still running into those same sins and carrying the same guilt. I want you to know today that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know that there is transformation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can be made different and you can be made new. Let me pray for us now. Father, Lord, these are sensitive issues and we understand that. And God, we're not, we're not quick to own publicly our sexual failures. The shame that comes with that. But, Father, we're glad that when we are ashamed of ourselves, you are not ashamed of us. You love us and you care. God, do your work in us now, I pray. Deliver people from the bondage of sexual sin. For that person, Lord, who may be about to be grabbed, just like Joseph, God, give them strength to run away. God, for that person who's fallen, Lord, give them strength to come to Jesus to find forgiveness. Change us and make us new, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing this great old song.